Did any of you think you had the Dharma talk schedule figured out? (laughs) 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 Things change. (laughs) Happy to be here with you tonight. So we're going to start out with something that's um, kind of fun, but also kind of serious. So according to the Buddhist commentaries, uh, most of us predominate in one of the three roots of suffering. So the three roots are craving, aversion, and confusion or delusion. Some of us might have a double major or... (laughs) or a major and a minor, but that most of us have our favorite. (laughs) And this favorite um, uh, root of suffering is our go-to strategy for dealing with this wild world. It's our um, control strategy for how to deal with the world of anicca, of change. I loved how Stephanie said um, last night... (laughs) Freedom through understanding, not control. We start with freedom through control. I mean, that's, our, that's, that's what we're hoping. And these three uh, roots of suffering are our control strategies. So the, the greed types predominate in wanting. The aversive types predominate in not wanting. And the confused types aren't really sure. <laughs> and um, some of you have heard this before, and some of you may already know which type you fall into. But basically, if your reaction to something new or your primary relax- re- um, relationship to the world is, yes, I want more, then you're probably a desire type or a greed type. And if your reaction is, no. <laughs> Something new? No. Um, You're probably an aversive type, and if your reaction is, well, maybe, what about this, maybe that, then you're probably a confused type. Yes, no, and maybe. We don't tend to like our predominant type. Well, I should actually... um, the greed types, sometimes they like to call themselves the sensuous types. <laughs> and they sometimes feel some pride in the, in the type they are. But the other two are like, no, I don't, you know, aversive. Oh, well, you know, I have such a mean mind, <laughs> such a oh, reactive mind. So the aversive types are like, oh, am I a bad person? And the confused types are like, why can't I land here like I'm... I just would like some, you know, some things to be a little bit more kind of connected, and um, so they might judge themselves. But really, we learn over time that our primary type is our main teacher, but also that it's not so personal. And I actually found that helpful. I'm an aversive type, and um, you know, my early practice. I don't remember. Very rarely, I might have wanted something. I was so busy not wanting that that there wasn't much room for much else. <laughs> and you know, lots of anger and fear and sadness and judgment. And it would be so easy to feel bad about myself, right? But 
when I understood that, oh, this is just like my primary control strategy for the world. Somehow I came in with this. Um, it's my job this time around, my primary job. It really helped me not to identify so personally with it and just to take it as energy that I needed to learn how to work with. So I recommend that, that angle with it. But it's helpful because it can kind of clarify for us where, where you know, our primary work is. But we all have all three, and um, my experience is that once you kind of work out your first one to some level of um, some ability to manage it fairly well, um, then you go on to your second, and then you go on to your third. So, you know, you cover them all if you stick around long enough. Just to a brief interlude here, these three personality types do have their positive aspects. So the, the greed or sensuous types tend to be um, strong in devotion. And the aversive types um, tend to have kind of sharp, clear minds. That they cut through. And um, the confused types tend to be stronger in equanimity. So it's not all bad news. And it's said that they, they morph, that over that as we work with them, they morph into these more positive aspects. I think of them as protections. You know, the control strategy, you can say, are protections. They're trying to protect us from reality. Reality is so intense. That's why we aren't here most of the time is because it's so intense. It's this, this just ceaseless change. And um, these strategies try to help us uh, make sense or feel like we have some control in the world. So for the grasping or the craving, it's trying to protect us from the truth that all pleasant things end. Give us illusion that we, if we hold on long enough, we can keep things. Make the pleasantness last. Aversion tries to protect us from the truth that we have to deal with unpleasantness whether we want to or not. You know, aversion kind of gives us the hope that if we hate something enough, it'll go away. I mean, that's the secret hope of aversion. And um, confusion kind of spaces us out enough that we don't really have to be here at all. We're distracted by the skeptical mind. If you're still wondering which route is your primary strategy, you're probably a confused type. (laughs) The other two have already pegged themselves. (laughs) Or if you think, well, you know, I'm some of all three. (laughs) You're probably the last one. (laughs) It's not your fault. It's not our fault. These strategies are not our fault. They're just conditioning, right? Our favorite way to protect ourselves in this world. So I'm going to give three talks, one on each one. And uh, tonight we're going to start with craving. Some of you have heard this story before. Years ago, I I taught um, 
yearly at a retreat center in the West, and I would go a a day early to acclimate um, to the time and arrive. And the staff and I had this um, uh, ritual almost of on my day off um, to bake brownies. And these weren't regular brownies. These were Giardelli brownies, so they were, like, really, really good. And we would eat some, and we'd share some with the yogis. Well, one day I took a brownie back to my uh, little house or unit that I was staying in. Well, that was the intention. So I took the brownie, and I was going to take it back to where I was staying, but craving got a hold of me, and I ate it before I got back. And so when I got back to my little cottage, I was like, wow, I've been bested by a brownie. (laughs) I was like, tomorrow, we are going to do this over, and we are going to do it with mindfulness. So the next day, I got my brownie, and I'm walking, and I'm watching uh, craving arise, right? So craving arises, like, you got to eat that brownie. Like, if you eat that brownie, you are going to be happy. (laughs) If you eat that brownie, you're probably going to be happy forever. (laughs) If you don't eat that brownie, you're going to (laughs) die. Like... (laughs) The craving, I I love chocolate, so the craving got, you know, would get really strong. And I would watch this energy, it it peaked, you know, and then it would go down the other side. It would lessen, kind of a little lull, and then it would go up again, right? The same thing, you've got to eat this brownie, you're going to die if you don't eat this brownie. And then it would go down again. And that time I made it to my cottage without eating the brownie. And that felt good. So we see that mindfulness of craving, you could say it empowers us because it gives us choice. We're not um, under the control of craving. We have flexibility. We live in a society that glorifies desire. A while ago, I saw a tagline for Honda. It said, something new to crave, crave (laughs) crave.honda.org. Or there was, for a while, I think McDonald's tried to sell ribs, and and it said, McRibs, the simple joy of obsession. (laughs) You know, those are just two little examples. We can go on and on. Our whole economic system runs on desire. And so we're up against something here. We're up against not only just human conditioning um, to want to go after what's pleasant and to keep it, but we're also under a whole um, cultural paradigm that considers that a good thing to do. And even maybe considers desire as pleasant. If you asked um, your regular worldling running around, um, is is uh, wanting is is desire pleasant? They probably say, "Yeah, sure." But here we take the stance that we want to turn towards craving and get to know it intimately, understand it deeply, and see: Does it deliver on its promise? 
Is it pleasant? What happens when we bring mindfulness to it? So it's kind of a revolutionary stance, radical. You guys get to be revolutionaries here. And um, from this exploration, we learn a healthy sense of empowerment, a relationship with desire that gives us choice and flexibility. A number of years ago, a friend of mine um, sent me a video, a video link, or I think actually he had it posted on his Facebook page, and uh, it was of this little girl, and her, she's talking to her mom, and she's like, um, can we have waffles for dinner? And her mom's like, no, we can't have waffles for dinner. And she's like, I want waffles. And her mom's like, we had waffles for breakfast, and we had waffles for dinner last night, so we're not having waffles for dinner. And she's like but I want waffles. So she starts getting really upset. She's like, I want waffles. And then she's like, I can't stop thinking about waffles. (laughs) Why can't I stop thinking about waffles? And my friend uh, writes underneath, I think she's about to have a breakthrough with quitting. Because what you see with craving is that it's single-pointed, right? It's very, very focused, and it grabs your attention, and it um, hypnotizes you and entrances you. It's like you're stuck, right? Why can't I stop thinking about waffles? (laughs) It makes me think of of a yogi who I met a few days ago, and I have permission to share this story. This yogi said that they spent um, early retreat, one early retreat, just thinking about milkshakes and wanting a milkshake and like sitting after sitting day after day wanting a milkshake and planning how they were going to have a milkshake when they left here, where they were going to go, who they were going to be with. You know, they're going to get this milkshake. (laughs) It's kind of like waffles, right? And then they went to get the milkshake and... um, they didn't want it. So there we go, craving. It hypnotizes us and, and uh, narrows our vision, right? Kind of excludes everything but what we want. Well, you have a lot of words for wanting in Buddhism. There's preference. Wanting, desire, craving, grasping, clinging, and finally attachment. We're also talking about lust and coveting and all the nuances of the ways that we lean into what's pleasant and try to obtain and keep it. I once asked Analio, the scholar monk, um, whether it was important to be precise about which word we were using and all these words, like precise that we were translating just the right word from the Pali and he said nope what's important is the amount of suffering present so that's what we're looking at with all of these words it's like what's where's the suffering what is the suffering and how do we release ourselves from that suffering The word that's most often used for craving is tanha in um, Pali, tanha. And its literal translation is thirst. So the strength of that word suggests 
the suffering in it, right? That it has this grasping quality that we want something for ourselves. That it's entangling. There's tension, right? In that word thirst, there's tension. It's deep. That word thirst is deep. So the other day, um, well, it was last night, <laughs> Shelley was talking about uh, the, noble, uh, the three, uh, four noble truths and that craving is the second noble truth. So we have there is suffering and then there is the cause of suffering, which is craving. Just to place it in the teachings. You may have noticed that the things we talk about that actually can be placed in several different parts or many different parts of the teaching. The teachings are like a hologram. They, you, you go in through one angle and you, you see it one way, you go another angle, you see it another way, but it all kind of fits together in the end. Traditionally, there's three kinds of craving. Craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence or becoming, and craving for non-existence or non-becoming. I'm mostly going to talk about the first one. I have a feeling I'm not going to make it to the other two, even though it's in my notes. Just I have a tendency to have way more material than I can get to. Craving is a slick marketer. It arises with the delusion or the belief that things have permanency and they can provide the satisfaction that we're looking for. And that's how um, craving hooks us. One time I was teaching with um, an assistant and uh, we were, I was going to talk about clinging and craving that night. And uh, she says, I like clinging. It makes me feel better. Kind of. <laughs> I loved her honesty, right? Because there is a way we... It, it does make us feel better because it makes us think that we can control things. But then she put that kind of on the end, right? <laughs> because it's so stressful. It's dukkha. And it's endless. That's the thing about craving. You satisfy one desire and then you want another. It goes on and on. We get entranced by the pleasantness of the thing we want, the milkshake, the waffle, and we keep trying to satisfy that wanting. And our very deep desire for rest, for peace, gets perturbed. The Buddha said that um, wanting is like being stuck in debt and never being able to pay it off. That kind of still apt metaphor 2,600 years later. So there's two ways we can work with um, craving. One is uh, very active and the other one's very receptive. So the active way is that we um, we use a strong kind of renouncing energy to just cut it off. We apply strong active energy 
to the craving. We don't give it any room to get a grip on us. And this can be really helpful, especially with addictions or cravings that um, are going to cause us to do something unskillful or harmful. There's a, we have to kind of call forth our energy and say, no, I'm not going to go there. Sometimes it's helpful to remove the desired object from our presence so that uh, it's harder to obtain. I don't keep dark chocolate-covered almonds in my house because if they're there, I'll eat them. (laughs) If you have a VR of a personal romance that's causing desire to rise, perhaps it's best not to walk in the same room as them or sit near them in the hall. Remove the trigger. So that's one way we can work with craving is remove the, tr- the trigger. One of my friends who was a desire type said that she enjoyed having a bare room because then there was nothing in it to want. And actually, the um, commentary suggests that the desire types have a pretty pared-down um, atmosphere to help calm the the wanting mind. But once we feel like we have some basic management of of our actions, um, we can turn to craving and get to know it intimately, thoroughly, and we transform its power through mindfulness, through understanding. How do we experience it in the body? How do we experience it in the mind? How do we experience it in the heart? Can we hear the beliefs and the delusions that it speaks to us, like me and the brownie? You're going to die if you don't get this thing. Can we feel the trance of it? Can we notice how when we want something... We focus just on the pleasant qualities of it and we disregard um, everything else. It's selective. It's selective in its focus. Our Vipassana romance can do no wrong. They're perfect. Just right for me, for the rest of my life. (laughs) And then we can ask ourselves, Can we bear wanting? There's a sense sometimes when when this craving or wanting is present that we can't that we actually can't stand it. We have to um, satisfy the desire because we can't stand the the energy of it. But maybe we can learn to just sit through it. Maybe we don't have to follow its dictates. So this is a kind of investigation, turning towards it directly. How is it? Even how does it change as we're with it? Like with the brownies, it peaks and then it goes down. That's usually how it works, actually. It peaks and then goes down and peaks and goes down. Can you surf it? (laughs) Can you surf craving? Can we surf craving? It's very interesting. It doesn't have to be considered a a task. 
It's actually quite fascinating to watch the mind when it's entranced in desire. And then we can also notice, and we should notice, the times when wanting is released, when it's absent, the mind and heart freed of craving. Some of you have described times when the meditation flows and there's just the restfulness of not wanting anything, of being content with being just here. Sometimes it's just a few moments of this contentment, but it can teach us something. It can teach us something about the deepest happiness. You know, usually we think happiness is getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. But maybe there's a deeper happiness that has this quality of of rest, non-turbulence, non-agitation, peace. So don't skip over those moments. They're, They're subtler maybe, so we can maybe just skip over them. But notice them. Oh, mind and heart freed of craving free of wanting. It's like the, um, the, the fist of wanting opens, the open fist of the heart-mind, right? We don't have to get rid of the thing, we just let it sit here without this, <laughs> without the tension of wanting and grasping. They're like little, these moments that we have are sometimes, you know, it's more than a moment. Sometimes it goes on for quite a a while. Um, They're like tastes of nibbana. We don't have to wait for the big bang. (laughs) We can enjoy these little tastes, maybe call them mini nibbanas, when the mind and heart are freed of craving. That's the third noble truth, right? The heart and mind freed of craving. And while it may feel like not much is happening when we're resting in contentment or flow or ease or non-reactivity, non-wanting, we're learning on a deep neurological, psychological, cellular level the restfulness and peace of a heart and mind freed of craving. That's good. That's a lot. <laughs> it's quiet, so maybe we think not much is happening, but we're, we're acclimating to peace. But when wanting is present, we also notice that in our meditation. So we have this pleasant object that we're wanting or trying to hold on to. It might just be a pleasant sitting, right? You come back in, all right, that last sitting was really great. How do we make it happen again, (laughs) right? Um, Or it might be really subtle. Sometimes wanting's really subtle. It's not like some blaring. Sometimes it's blaring, I got to have those waffles. But sometimes it's just just this, uh, in the mind and heart, like I described with my trying to take one step without wanting to be somewhere else. It's just this, not here. Um, And we see what happens when we turn uh, mindfulness to it. Sometimes it just, the mindfulness dissolves it. That can happen. 
Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the wanting persists and then we can get more interested. And as we meet this energy and live through it without acting on it, it starts to lose its power. We see its game. It's false promises. It's trickery. And when that, and then when desire rises, when we start to know it so well, we can say, oh yeah, desire, hello, my old friend. Sometimes it's, um, a friend of mine, a friend, teacher of mine, described it like you have a, th- a thick cloth, that's desire, and then mindfulness, each moment of mindfulness like pokes a hole in that cloth. And eventually you can start to see through it. It's not so dense. It's not so opaque. It starts to become more transparent. So one particular moment of mindfulness, you might be saying, well, that didn't do much. (laughs) But they they have a cumulative effect. In the Buddhist sutras, uh, Mara is um, said to be the personification of these three uh, roots of suffering. Sometimes I think of Mara like coyote trickster. And in the sutras, he often likes to mess with dharma practitioners. So he'll um, approach a monk or a nun who's sitting under a tree practicing seriously, and he'll say some version of, what are you doing? This is crazy. You should be having some fun. Go after sense desires or pleasures. This isn't leading anywhere. Mara may have spoken to you also. (laughs) But the game always changes in these sutras when the nun or monk says, Mara, I see you. That's it. Just Mara, I see you. And what she means is, Mara, I really see you. I know your tricks. And then what happens is Mara either disappears Or, in some sutras, he goes and he sits dejected, playing in the dirt with a stick. (laughs) It's a good image. (laughs) He doesn't know what to do. Because he's been seen, he's lost his power. So, that's mindfulness when it's brought to Mara's tricks helps craving lose its power. Sexual desire is another experience of craving that is not uncommon on retreats, arises commonly for yogis. We had a question in the basket asking to talk about it. For some of us, it might manifest as uh, romantic fantasies. In my first retreat, uh, the person sitting next to me, um, well, we got married and had kids. and <laughs> That was my form. <laughs> fantasies, right? But sometimes it's just lust, pure physical lust, right? So when we notice sexual desire, lust, romantic fantasy um, present, 
we can turn towards it. What is this energy? What's going on here? How does it feel in the mind, the heart, and the body? What's the causal chain? (laughs) So we can start noticing what was the trigger. There's a trigger and then there's the lust or the, the sexual energy. And we learn how to hold the physical sensations. You could say one of the ways we can hold them is within our our whole body because we don't want to neither encourage nor try to stamp out this energy. We want to know how to hold it and how to relate to it again so that it doesn't have power over us, so that we know it well enough and can hold it well so that we have choice and flexibility about how to use this very, very powerful energy. It's especially helpful for keeping the third precept to know how to do this, right, in our, here in our daily lives. Um, yeah, it helps us make wise decisions around our sexuality. And as with any experience, if it becomes overwhelming, we move away. We take our energy somewhere else, our our attention somewhere else. may even go for a quick walk or fast walk or whatever helps us stabilize, like I said, as it's true for any experience that's overwhelming us. We tend to get mighty serious about all of this, but we can play. There's room for creativity, as Jill was saying this morning. Ah, Trying to think of examples. (laughs) How many times do you get um, this craving arise in a sitting? That could be fun to count. (laughs) I remember one time I took my um, goddaughter out for a Sunday. This was a long time ago when she was young, and we had a hot fudge Sunday to share. And I dived in with gusto. You know how I feel about chocolate. So I dived in with gusto, and I found myself pushing her spoon away <laughs> so that I could get more hot fudge. <laughs> we laughed and laughed, right? It's like we can laugh at at desire also. You know, we don't have to say, oh, Rebecca, you're so horrible. Look what you did. But we laughed and laughed, and they still remind me of it sometimes, (laughs) even though this happened, what, 30 years ago. (laughs) Sometimes the heart and mind are just shameless, and we can just um, either laugh at that or care about it. Another um, powerful place to look at craving is eating meditation. So notice uh, we're standing in the line, right, waiting for lunch. Does craving arise? What's it like? You can actually practice standing in the line, right? Oh, it's that, right, you're standing in the line, you're just like, would you hurry up? Like, why are you taking so long? Is there going to be enough for me, right? You could like... (laughs) Or that leaning forward energy of, of wanting. It's like, oh yeah, that's wanting. Wow, 
Look at it. It's propelling. It has a propelling motion, energy to it, right? A leaning forward, propelling energy. Oh, interesting. What about when we're serving ourselves? Does craving arise? Can we bear it? (laughs) How much food do we take? That's always so interesting, right? One yogi was talking about uh, how they would put food on their plate and then they would go back and sit down. And this yogi said, somebody put food on my plate. (laughs) (laughs) Because have you ever noticed how it looks like more once you're sitting down than it does in the line? At least that, that... that's been my, not so much anymore, but for years, years of my practice, I had this commitment. I was going to eat all my lunch. I did not want to throw away food. It felt unethical. So I tried to take the right amount of food, and I would get back to the table, and I would, I would look at it, and i go, oh, my God, it grew. How did that happen? It's because craving distorts reality. So we learn about the nature of craving. And then we start to learn not to always believe craving, right, through this mindful investigation. I finally now mostly, most often take the right amount of food. Sometimes I take a little bit too much. But, but it took a long time. So if, if you, know, you find yourself struggling with that, don't judge yourself. It's the power of craving. Another experiment that's super interesting is when you take a bite of food, track the craving. When does the craving for the next bite start? And what happens to your experience of tasting the food when the craving arises for the next bite? Another craving exercise when am I full? What does it feel like to be full? Does craving continue after I'm full? If so, does it overpower me? Maybe. Again, we don't judge ourselves. My teacher, Michelle, she would tell some pretty funny stories. So she told a story of one time she was on a three-month retreat, and she had to leave for something. And she decided to get a bag of chocolates for the staff. And she said, somewhere around the time I was getting close to arriving back, I realized I was going to eat those chocolates. (laughs) And she said, so I said to myself, if I'm going to eat them, I'm going to eat them mindfully. So she mindfully ate, you know, unwrapping the chocolate, noticing the craving, eating it, noticing. Because if we do it mindfully, we have a chance to learn. I loved last night how Shelley kept coming back to we're learners, we're learners, we're learners. That's what we're doing with craving, we're learning. That's why we turn towards it in order to learn, to develop understanding that gives us freedom, flexibility, choice. So what we really have to get with craving is we have to see how it disappoints us, how it doesn't deliver what it promises My early retreats, every morning I thought about lunch. As you know, lunch is a big event of the day. And uh, when it was hard, you know, lunch was going to save me. It was always lunch. And every day I'd be eating my lunch, and like halfway through the lunch, I would have this sinking feeling. Oh, my God, it's going to end. 
<laughs> I didn't do it. It was, I was so disappointed day after day. <laughs> you know, I'd be sitting in the morning, oh yeah, lunch, great, what's for lunch? Can't wait for lunch. <laughs> and then halfway through lunch, oh my God, it didn't do it. But I did it mindfully. It was a learning experience. <laughs> One time um, when I was in, uh, practicing in Burma and Myanmar, so... One of my favorite things, there are many things I love about practicing in Myanmar, but one of my absolute favorite things is um, Burmese sweet tea, la pecho. And every morning we'd have la pecho. And la pecho is made like with sweet and condensed milk, all throughed up, good Burmese tea, like really. So going on retreat, la pecho was always the experience that I would hang on to when I needed something to look forward to. I think you, some of you will recognize that go-to that we anticipate when we're struggling. It's like, oh, there's always tea tomorrow morning, or there's always that cookie that I have, or whatever it is. So I looked forward to this tea for months before going to Burma. And, um, yeah, lots of anticipation. So the first morning I get to the retreat, and this meditation center, it's been, or this monastery meditation center has been, People have been meditating there for 800 years. So it's got some good Dhamma energy. And so I would just, as soon as I arrived there, I would just drop right into retreat very easily and quickly. So the first morning I get up for um, breakfast, I'm looking forward to my lapecho. And I cried all the way through breakfast. The lapecho is sweet and delicious, but the pleasantness didn't last. Each sip of tea was pleasant, and then it ended. Pleasant, gone. Pleasant, gone. I was so disappointed. I had unconsciously expected so much more. So every morning I drank my sweet tea with mindfulness. I watched the pleasantness, so feeling tone, right, very related here. I watched feeling tone, the pleasant feeling tone. I watched it arise. I watched it pass away. I felt my relationship to this continual ending. Anicca. Passing through disappointment, anger, betrayal. Sometimes I felt like the tree was, the tea was betraying me. <laughs> and Grief. And then other times I was so angry at the tea for not delivering what I wanted. Finally, one morning, as I was mindfulness of the sweetness of the tea, the pleasantness arising, I experienced pleasantness, ending, peace. I learned. I learned to let go. Or you could say, mindfulness learned to let go. Or my heart learned to let go. And that peace was much more pleasant than the tea. Just a sweet equanimity. Able to hold the truth of the ending of pleasantness. So life teaches us when we're willing to pay attention and feel our way through our own experience to the freedom of the heart. 
Charlotte Jokobeck, a Zen teacher, uh, the late Charlotte Jokobeck, one of my favorites, she said, practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. One Tibetan master said that that disappointment is a sign of basic intelligence. (laughs) So we know directly through um, mindfully being with pleasant experiences that although they're nourishing, they don't last and they can't give us the ultimate happiness we're looking for. And we feel ourselves get attached, try to hold on. We feel the the belief that the tea or the hope that the tea will do it for us. And we've experienced the stress and the tension and the dukkha of that, right? The restlessness. And then we see that we can let go. We still enjoy the tea, but minus that, (laughs) minus the stress, minus the tension. So we we learn how to enjoy um, the pleasant things in this world, but without the extra stress of uh, holding on. And um, pleasant experiences, they're not bad. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, we get the idea that um, we have to, like, kind of cut out the the pleasantness. No, I think that uh, pleasant experiences can be quite nourishing and soothing. Soothing for our nervous systems, right? They help us relax. And sometimes on retreat, if there's a lot of dukkha, I say to the student, go find some pleasantness and enjoy it, right? Whether, I mean, the options are somewhat limited here, but. <laughs> <laughs> but a cup of warm tea can, or, or um, looking at the, the trees swaying in the wind or just the little pleasures that are here. I know you all know that they can refresh us, right, and give us strength to keep going and and um, a beautiful part of our lives. All we're taking away is that, the stress of trying to hold on. It's also important to notice that, uh, to note that some desires are skillful wishes that we wish to follow through on. Um, Near the beginning of the retreat, Brian talked about dhamma chanda, our our desire, our yearning for the dhamma. And then there's kusala chanda, and that's the desire for skillfulness, to do what is wholesome and helpful. And then we have certain desires in our lives that are are worth pursuing. And, uh, you know, so we're not saying that we never follow our desires, but if we know how to be with that energy then we have the space to kind of step back. Is this something worth pursuing? Is this something worth dedicating my energy to? So again, we have the choice um, to make uh, better decisions. 
So what we learn um, is how to let go. By going through craving with mindfulness, we learn how to let go. So it's actually a really joyful uh, investigation. We can't will letting go, right? You've all tried that. Um, just let go. <laughs> right? Like You can't do that. But the heart learns, the mind learns by just mindfully being with the unfolding process. We start to see the futility of grasping as a happiness strategy. It's like Dara pointed out on Tuesday when she pointed to the illuminating insight of Anicca. So, that, so Anicca is weaved right through this whole discussion, right? That the reason that um, pleasant can't bring us the ultimate happiness we want is because things change. They don't last. So we know a mind with craving, we know a mind free of craving. As wanting loses its power, intimacy increases. So the opposite of craving is not detachment. We might think it's detachment, but the opposite of craving is intimacy. It allows us to be closer to experience. Wanting and craving actually separates us from experience. It kind of, you could say that that wanting occupies space in the heart that could be available for connection. I like to sometimes experiment, especially outside when I see something really beautiful like the autumn leaves or the sunsets, and um, just be with that experience, right? Intimate with that experience, really like close with that experience, and then watch. Just watch when the mind just says, can I have a little bit more? (laughs) Right? There's this, we actually contract, you can feel the space of the mind and heart contract. Can I have just a little bit more? Can I fully grok this? Can I? Uh, uh, wanting. And you feel it. It's like, oh, now you're separate. Now we're separate. But when the wanting releases, then there's intimacy, connection, relationship, embeddedness, aliveness, hereness, nowness. Lightness, spaciousness. I do have a little bit of time to talk about craving for becoming and craving for non-becoming. There's so many ways we could talk about craving for becoming. I'm just going to drop a couple ideas. So one very gross level we might notice of craving for becoming is um, wanting to be important, right? Like, how are we presenting ourselves to other people? What are they thinking about me? Uh, Do they like me? Do they think I'm a good yogi? Um, All of that, right? 
Another one is just seeing how we, we, we had this deep need to create this self through thought, clinging to our stories. I like to walk in the woods, and um, I prefer not to think, but some days it's like that, and some days it's not. And one day I was just like, why am I thinking? And it was just like, so that I am, so that I exist, so that I become, right? One yogi talked about the exhausting nature of this wanting to shore the self up, to become, to be, right? So it's kind of related to wanting. You can feel the wanting in there, right? The, or the pull to identify with our experience to make it who we are. That's a form of becoming, of craving to become. And then the craving for non-becoming. <laughs> On one level, we could call that not wanting the experience that we're having in the moment. On a subtler level, it's not wanting to see. It's not wanting to inhabit this world. It's a pulling back from reality. It's a, it's a resistance to being here, right? It's a desire for non-awakening, which travels right alongside our desire for awakening. Sometimes we really don't want to see how things are. Sometimes we don't want any more truth. T.S. Eliot said, most people can't bear too much reality. (laughs) We're trying to increase our reality tolerance here. We got a note in the basket, and um, one of it said, like, we know that sometimes we just need a break. What do we do when we just need a break? Well, we take thought vacations. That's one thing we do. <laughs> That's a break, right? <laughs> or go to sleep. Or um, Maybe we can ask ourselves what's a skillful kind of break when we find that we just don't want to be here. We just don't want to do this. What's a skillful way to get a break? I'm totally into, I'm down with getting a break if you need one. Um, we don't need to kind of be... The, the Dharma police with ourselves, like, you got to be here. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just need to rest for a while. Um, maybe, maybe a walk around the loop is, is a fairly skillful break. Or maybe a cup of tea. Again, the options are limited. <laughs> but a walk in the woods. Maybe something pleasant gives us a break. I just had this thought of kind of sitting in the woods and smelling the earth after the rain. Maybe that gives us a break. So we have craving for sense desires for pleasant sense experiences we have craving to become we have craving not to become and then we have freedom from craving when we open the fist of the heart mind and allow things to be as they are without interference with intimacy with connection 
with love and compassion because that's that's what the heart lets out when it's not full with craving. Poignancy, right? We feel the poignancy of this world, this fleeting world. It allows us to land here fully. So each moment gives us this opportunity to explore this question, to be a learner here. So when craving arises, if you have the energy and the stability, turn towards it. Get to know it intimately so you can say, Mara, I see you. I really see you. If it's too much, move away. And then when there's interest, move back. I think that's about enough for today, but I do have a little poem I'll just leave us with. It's somewhat relevant. (laughs) It's one of my favorite poems by Wendell Berry. Geese appear high up over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandoned as in love or sleep holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. I'll just sit for a minute. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.